Hello, friends. Welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. Tonight, I wanted to continue our journey with talking about skillful doubt. And last week, I think I misspoke. I think at the end of last week's talk, I was talking about doing self-doubt, which I do am going to do, but I forgot that I hadn't done the other part of doubt. Last week, we did benefits of doubt, positive doubt, and this week, we're going to do doubt as a hindrance, of which self-doubt is one, so probably self-doubt next week. Uh, I don't think we'd be able to get to it today, and it's a pretty big topic, and I wanted to be able to do some guided practice around it, but we will get to it. And just to get us uh, all on the same page, last week we were talking about how doubt, well, one, is really important to the Dharma, uh, being one of the big hindrances, but we also mentioned how doubt has this kind of double-edged sword. On the one hand, doubt can be skillful. Doubt is a part of our natural inclination to be cautious, to be skeptical, and when we're inquiring or learning about things, being doubtful is highly encouraged in the Dharma. And at the same time, the Dharma talks about doubt as being one of the major obstacles to awakening. So how do we balance? How do we balance those two? And uh, this week I happened to read an article by uh, Gil Fransdell, and they made this great distinction, which I hadn't heard before. And the distinction was hindering doubt versus questioning doubt, which is a great label. So hindering doubt is defined as doubt that decreases action in the path, right? Prevents us from practicing, is uncomfortable, or there's an aversive sensation to it, but the energy is withdraw. So there's hindering doubt, and then there's questioning doubt, which is inquiry. So questioning doubt is doubt that actually moves the practice forward. So last week when I was saying positive and negative doubt, this is much better. (laughs) This is much better. Hindering doubt and questioning doubt. So today we're going to talk about hindering doubt, the doubt of discomfort. Last week I mentioned that one of the unique things about the Dharma, amongst many, is that the Buddha really did encourage folks to look at truth as an experience, and something that is not truth, capital T, until you actually experience it directly. And there is this idea in the Dharma that you're supposed to try it on, right? There's this famous line, come and see, come and see. And uh, I dug up the quote from that uh, sentiment, and I wanted to read it to you before we get started today. It took me a while to find it because I didn't know what it was called, but I did find the quote. Uh, this version of it was from an article by Tenzin Palmo, another teacher to check out if you haven't, Buddhist nun. So here's the translation that she uses in one of her articles. The students to the Buddha say, Many teachers come through here. Each has his own doctrine. Each claims that his particular philosophy and practice is the truth. But they all contradict each other. Now we're totally confused. What do we do? (laughs) The Buddha replies, You have a right to be confused. 
This is a confusing situation. Do not take anything on trust merely because it has been passed down through tradition, or because your teachers say it, or because your elders have taught you, or because it's written in some famous scripture. When you have seen it and experienced it for yourself to be right and true, then you can accept it. Seems like a pretty uh, self-effacing statement for somebody in a position of claiming to be awakened to encourage a group of quote-unquote disciples or followers to second-guess authority, to, to second-guess tradition, to second-guess teachings. It's a pretty uh, remarkable thing considering India of the time and the infallibility, the perception of infallibility of gurus at the time. Uh, this is pretty, this is a huge powerful reframe on authority and dynamics of teacher-student relationships and the nature of truth. So this is where doubt comes in, this, this doubt that we talked about last week, this healthy doubt. So let's flip it on its head and talk about the, the skeptical doubt, the doubt of hindrances. So just to get us on the same page, we know what the hindrances are for the most part. We have five hindrances. We have craving, which includes grasping, clinging, and then aversion, which includes hatred, ill will, on the minor end or mild end, disliking or pushing away or just turning away from something, even at the gentle side. So we have craving and aversion and all the gradations of that experience. And then, of course, we have uh, restlessness, agitation and worry, often very uncomfortable, especially directly in the sitting practice. And then we have sloth and torpor, which is the physical fatigue, emotional fatigue. And then we have doubt, which is our fifth uh, and final hindrance. Just to remind us that the hindrances are both heart-mind qualities, so they're, feel, they're things we feel, we can tangibly sense them through awareness directly in the body, but we can also identify them as habits. And that's an important distinction because what we do with hindrances is not just learn to notice them and feel into them and to be able to embrace them with equanimity, but we also look at them as habits that are ultimately to be replaced. And we replace these habits of hindrance, <laughs> the hindrance habits, we replace them with our seven factors of awakening, right? Our factors of resilience, our factors uh, of illumination. So the hindrances, including doubt, is both a sensation and a feeling, but also a way of being. It's a way of living in the world. We can feel doubtful, but we can act in ways that are also doubtful. And both of those are avenues for healing and for awakening. So those two sides of the coin, I think, can be really helpful, especially in direct, uh, in direct practice. So one other thing from last week to reiterate is that the reason doubt is considered one of the most dangerous, maybe a heavy word, but, but maybe not, uh, dangerous hindrances in, uh, in the Dharma is because it's a very slippery slope to non-practice, right? And, you know, many of us have experienced craving in meditation. But if I'm sitting in meditation and I'm craving a latte, that's not going to derail my practice. <laughs> I hope that's not going to derail my practice. I'm not going to desire something in my meditation and have that result in giving up the practice. And same with aversion. We might experience discomfort in our meditation, Right? We know what it's like to have physical pains and contraction of the physical form, depression, anxiety, agitation. Those things arise. And yes, they're, 
They're definitely not comfortable, but we learn as meditators to manage them. And ultimately, when a negative or aversive emotion comes up, we're not going to fall into a state of non-practice. We're not going to say, I don't want to practice anymore because there was an emotion that came up. Normally, we're going to work with the emotion. And so with doubt, though, <laughs> when the thought comes up into your head that the Buddha wasn't enlightened or this practice is stupid or being mindful of breathing is a joke or I'm not capable, that is much more likely to end in non-practice. So that's why the Dharma, uh, the Dharma, that's why doubt is considered to be so risky as a hindrance because it can create this kind of spiral into non-practice. And so many people, I've known many students who were serious practitioners who spent decades practicing and got fell into, I guess, a pit of doubt and stopped practicing either permanently or for long periods of time because doubt became such a big contentious state of mind and they couldn't get out of it. So it's serious when, when doubt arises to be able to really monitor doubt and to look and see what kind of doubt we experience personally as meditators. So when we look at doubt kind of in the I'd say maybe the classic interpretation of doubt. In the Satipatthana, when we look at doubt, doubt is described in contrast to the three refuges. So we know that we take refuge in Buddha Dharma Sangha, right? The triple gem. That's our refuge. And taking refuge in Buddha Dharma Sangha is, it's not intended to be a faith walk. It's not to be intended to be blind faith. Taking refuge in the triple gem is intended to be supportive psychologically and socially supportive of our practice. So traditionally, when we look at doubt, the Buddha talks about doubt often coming up in the form of doubting the teachers, doubting the teachings themselves, the meditation practice, doubting yourself, like I can't do this or I'm not capable, doubting Sangha, where community doesn't feel supportive or safe. And so that's how doubt usually arises. And that's kind of the classic interpretation. There's other things that the Buddha talks about in different suttas about doubt, but those are kind of the ones we normally talk about uh, when we're just talking about the, the basics. I think I'll start with, let's start with doubt, doubt of teachings. That one's actually kind of one of the easier ones to, to talk about. I'm surprised, I, maybe I shouldn't be, but like after all these years of practice, I'm still surprised that I have times when I doubt the teachings. <laughs> after all this time, there's still moments where I'm like, damn, this is so hard. <laughs> Why is this so hard? You know, or I should be like, enlightenment should be sooner or something. Like, it doesn't even matter. It just feels like that's just going to be forever, I guess. I'm very comfortable. Well, I won't say I'm comfortable, but I'm very much a well, well aware that doubt continues through uh, the practice. And it's important to know, to normalize this, that the Buddha does say that doubt is the final hindrance to go because you're not going to actually be completely undoubting until you till stream entry, till you actually experience enlightenment. There's always going to be some doubt. So I kind of take refuge in that, that you're going to have doubt all the way to enlightenment. So if you have doubt and doubt has been an issue for you in various ways, you can normalize that as just being part of the process and you're going to have it all the way to enlightenment. So it's going to be... Uh, it's going to be there as a best friend, I guess, until we get to the end, or at least the beginning of the end of the path. When we talk about 
doubt of the teaching. So when we talk about doubting the Dharma itself, I always like to remind us that the mind takes comfort in familiarity. The mind takes comfort in confirmation. And what I mean by that is that the mind is always scanning the horizon of your present moment experience, and it's searching for evidence to prove what you already know. It's looking into the world and reaching out into the world, and it's asking of the present moment, where can I find evidence to confirm my beliefs about myself, about the world, about my politics, about relationships? The mind is looking out into the world to feel safe, and the way it does that is it looks for confirmation of what it already thinks to be true, even if that truth isn't actually true. <laughs> so the mind continues to extend itself out like an octopus into the environment, looking for proof to confirm itself to feel to feel good. So the <laughs> so here's where this becomes a problem, obviously, that the Dharma is both a psychological healing modality, one could say, and also a spiritual practice, and that when we approach the Dharma, the first thing we do is look for parts of the Dharma that we're most comfortable with. So the mind reaches out into the teachings to find parts of the teachings that we can easily resonate with and will confirm what we already think to be true. True about enlightenment, true about spirituality, true about Whatever, whatever truth we're seeking, we're, the first thing the mind's going to do when it meets the Dharma is impose on it what we already think enlightenment is supposed to be. And so that's the part that we first attach ourselves to. Now, the challenge with that is that the Dharma is really inviting us to consider a truth that we haven't known yet, because it's not a truth that exists in normal perception. It's not a truth that can be comprehended when our mind is filled with craving, aversion, or the hindrances, which is how we're normally experiencing the world. So the Dharma is asking us to set aside our bias and our natural inclination to take the Dharma and sort of adopt it to our life rather than allow the Dharma to transform our life, right? To go the other way. So this is where doubt is really important because normally the first thing we do with the Dharma when we doubt the teachings is we doubt the parts that we're unfamiliar with. We doubt the parts that are most dissonant with our usual and regular experience, right? So many of us come from other religions or spiritual traditions or maybe even numerous Buddhist traditions or whoever that may be for each of us. But so when we come to the Dharma, we're going to sort of turn away or at times maybe throw out parts of the Dharma that are too similar to our previous unpleasant spiritual experiences. So if we grew up in a home with spirituality that was oppressive in some way or judgmental or abusive, or we just didn't like it for some reason, if we notice any similarity in the Dharma, there's going to be doubt as a hindrance is going to arise. So that's one of the main ways that, <clears throat> excuse me, doubt arises as a hindrance is that we greet the Dharma and there are parts of it that we push away from because it's too similar or too similar to bad experiences we've had or it's too, too dissimilar <laughs> from what we're familiar with. 
So that's one thing to keep in mind is that we're naturally going to doubt the Dharma because what it's asking of us is huge. It asks this hugely counterintuitive way of being and our mind is going to naturally be averse. And the Buddha understood this from the beginning, which is why doubt is such a big topic. So that's the first thing I think would be uh, something to know. I also wanted to just remind us from my experience and then obviously being with like so many students, there are a series of topics in the Dharma which tend to trip us up and they are karma, surprise, rebirth, karma and rebirth. I'm an even, I think I should put rebirth at the top. Now again, okay, so this is, I just caught myself in such bias. I'm presuming, I'm speaking from a Judeo-Christian background, being someone in North American culture. Like if I was in Asia, that might not be so challenging. So I'm going to rephrase that just to say, as a person in North American culture, rebirth is not something that's normative in our spiritual practices. So that is something different. Karma is also something that we can, we tend to push away from. And then a couple others that we push away from, not as much from maybe religious imposition or from spiritual experience, but just because it's uncomfortable, which would be renunciation and the precepts. Renunciation. So karma, rebirth, the precepts, and renunciation. So when I say those, just... Take a moment to get in tune. Any time in your Dharma practice, has any of those really been a stumbling block or something that has agitated, annoyed, offended, or been a stumbling block to you? <laughs> I'm seeing some hands. So it's important to know those topics, right? To know that that's really going to be initially where a lot of us are going to be like, whoa, the doubt, skeptical doubt's going to come. Now, there's skillful skeptical doubt where we inquire into those processes. And then there's doubt as a hindrance where we kind of just push it away completely and we go into denial or we don't want to deal with the topic. So that's the other side of the coin. We got to have balance there. Another way that the teachings tend to create doubt in the beginning is that we're all, for the most part, at least in this room this evening and most of the people who listen to the podcast, our householders, right? We're not monastics. We haven't taken robes. We're not in a monastery setting. And we haven't made that big renunciation to the lives that we all experience in adulting. So we have families and kids and mortgages and I don't know, school loans or whatever the case may be, and politics and all the things we're a part of. So sometimes there are parts of the Dharma, since they were created at a and basically for monastics, but just for humans, but for monastics initially, it can be easy for us to presume that we can push parts away that we think are just for the monks. And that as householders, we take on a completely different Dharma, right? We might make a distinction between ourselves and the monastics. Now, in some cases, that's really true because we don't take the same precepts as the monastics so that there's definitely a difference. But sometimes there's like, this doubt that we have, and it just becomes this kind of narrative where the things we don't like about the Dharma, that's for the monastics, and the thing we things we like that are less challenging, that's for us. <laughs> so I'm just one of those people, so I'm speaking from direct experience. But we have to watch how we push and pull to and away from the Dharma with doubt, right? Remembering that the hindering doubt 
is the doubt that pushes us back from practice or pulls us back from practice. And the energy is not towards inquiry or expansion. It's the backward movement away from the teachings. I'll give you one example. I've given these examples before in different talks, but I don't know. I'll give them again. <laughs> I'll give them again. Now I've been teaching so long. It's like, I don't know if I should give the same examples that I give, but my life experience hasn't changed. It's the same experience I had before. So I'll just give you a couple personal examples. And those of you who've known me for like 10 years, it's like the same topics that I talk about. But so I'll just give, you know, examples for myself. But when I first came to the Dharma, so I come from this really kind of bizarre background where half my family was Catholic and the other half was Jewish. So there was this tension, this spiritual tension. I went to a Christian high school, but identified as being Jewish more. So like there was tension there. I always associated precepts of the Dharma with commandments. And I first came across the Dharma in college. I was not going <laughs> to, precepts were not something I wanted to adopt or was interested in, or it, to me, it seemed offensive and religious. So I was very much, I pushed back because I had this bias from a past experience and my mind was looking for something that was comforting and having to follow rules was not comforting so I was like I'm not doing that that's that's ridiculous and it wasn't just that I wasn't into it I had this whole narrative that I developed over time that the Buddha misunderstood precepts and should have just taken them out to begin with so I have that experience of like that bias, that negative brain bias to, to the precepts early on. Not now, but back then, definitely, there was this pushback um, to that. So we all have our pushbacks. And we just, one of the things the Buddhist, Buddha asks us to do with doubt, first and foremost, is to notice what is our doubt, right? Everybody who practices has their own version of it, right? So you have to notice like what your doubt is. It's not going to be universal doubt. It's going to be how your heart contracts from, from the Dharma. And that's where we dig in. And that's where we try to take a questioning, uh, a hindering doubt and turn it into a questioning doubt. So doubt in the teachings, not uncommon. A doubt of self. And again, I'll, t I'll do a full talk on this more, uh, more comprehensively, but self-doubt is really interesting in the teachings because oftentimes, because the Dharma is so challenging, it's hard for us to normalize the adventure, <laughs> the incredibly difficult adventure that the Dharma is in our life. And we tend to think that we are unique in the challenges. So it makes us feel like other people can get enlightened and other people are having good experiences, but I'm not capable. I'm not able to do this. I'm, and it goes from, I don't understand it to, I'm just broken in some way and just, I will never do it. I'll never be able to awaken because I've just got too much pain or too much heartache or too much of the hindrances. And so we need to look at our experience in the Dharma in that way, because again, this is a slippery slope to non-practice. If we think we're not worthy somehow of awakening or not up to the task of whatever we see enlightenment being, it's really easy to get into this self-deprecating mode where we just think others are capable, but I'm not. And <laughs> one example of this that I just think is, is awesome in my own experience is like if you're ever on retreat and you know, let's say you're on a day long retreat even, and you get to that, like 
you've, you've been meditating for four or five hours and the retreat's going along and you happen to open your eyes and you look at everybody else meditating and they seem so serene, but your knees are hurting so bad or your mind is wandering so ferociously that you're just thinking, why did I even come here? I can't even do this practice. But you look at everybody else and on the outside, they all seem awakened, but your mind is the only mind that you see wandering. And so it's so easy to think that like the wandering mind exists in one place in the universe, which is in your own head and not that everybody else struggles with wandering mind, just like, just like you do. So it's easy to take parts of the Dharma that are really challenging for us and to create a whole new level of suffering by having these stories of I'm just not good enough. I just can't do it. It's not going to be something I can be successful at. And no matter where you are in the Dharma, there can still be points where you just feel like, God, this is hard for me and easy for everybody else. And I have that still in my own, my own, <laughs> my own practice. I remember this past summer when Molly, my wife and I, we did a self-retreat and it's like a five or six day. It was, it was a good, solid, solid retreat. And gosh, there were some days where it was just so hard. I was having so much trouble. I couldn't keep my mind calm to save my life. And I started getting really doubtful and like, we were in noble silence, so I had no idea what she was experiencing, but I created this whole narrative about how, how she was having this wonderful retreat. And I was just like, God, I'm like, like a Dharma teacher. Like I should be able to like have at least one good sit, you know? And then when we ended the retreat, like when we talked about it, like she had so many days that were just so challenging. And then I felt good about myself after that. So just to remember that everybody struggles with the Dharma and, you know, the Buddha says that one of the antidotes to doubt is Sangha. And part of that is so we can share the trials and tribulations that we're ha having. So we don't think that we're the only ones that are struggling with the practice because it's so easy to think that everyone else is serene and you're the only one with the, the wandering mind. So self-doubt, notice the narratives or the stories you have around whether you do or do not feel competent in the practice. And what does that feel like to you? We watch that arise. We watch it pass away. I'll talk more about that, like I said, but that's basically self-doubt. Doubt of teachers. I was looking at this today. I had written some of this yesterday and was thinking this through, and it spawned a whole other talk that I need to give. Maybe in the next few weeks I'll give a I feel like this is a huge topic because it brings up other subtopics that I think are important. And I won't, I'll, I'll briefly talk about them today, but doubt of teachers as a hindrance, I'll start there and then I'll give a little bit of a shadow, a shadow example uh, as well, because I think it's important. The Dharma is kind of, the Dharma is unique in that it's designed to be a mentor-based training that's practiced in community. <clears throat> it's a mentor-based training that's practiced in community. And because the journey is an inward one, and because your inward journey is going to be different than mine, we're, we're all going to have hindrances, but my hindrances might be different in intensity than your hindrances. So I'm going to have craving, but what my mind desires in my sit is going to be different than what anyone else is going to be not completely, but you're going to have a unique expression of this inner journey because the eightfold path is inside. We need someone else who's already been there 
to help us reflect back where we are in the experience. So it's very hard to practice alone. There's something about this inward transformation that makes it very difficult to do solo. So this is where we have Sangha, and this is where we have teachers, and this is where we have our mentors who can help point us in the right direction. It would be a little bit more easy if I'm going to direct you in the physical world to like, like say a hiking trail or something where I can say, here's a map at the end of the journey, there's an X and that's where the waterfall is. And if you just follow, basically follow the trail, you're going to get there. I don't need to walk the path with you. I'll just give you the description of the landmarks. But meditation, as you know, it's like you go inside with awareness and I mean, you can't see anything in there. It's like you're spelunking or so like you're down in a cave and it's dark and there's like all these hindrances coming at you. I mean, it's it's crazy in there, at least in my in my head. It's kind of crazy. And so to find any find your way around in the mind through mindfulness, it really does require someone else who's already traversed some of the terrain to give us some kind of perspective on what we're experiencing. This is why mentorship is so important and why Sangha is so important because it's really hard to do this on our own. It's not designed to be done solo. And even when you think of like monastics, monks and nuns who've spent time in, you know, caves and in isolation, most of the time that's still done within a community context. There's people feeding them and taking care of them and they take breaks from the isolation into the community. So really there's still community that's wrapped around the Dharma most of the time uh, when it's being taught. Even the Buddha, when he created it, had a group of friends, right? It wasn't just him on his own. He had like his buddies and they were going around trying to figure it out. So because of this, it's really helpful to have a mentor or mentors that you can feel you can trust. And this is the big thing with skillful doubt. It is skillful to doubt the capacity of teachers because it's not blind faith. You never want to have blind faith, particularly with the spiritual authority figure. But you want to have enough comfort, right? You want to have enough trust in the person that you feel you can be vulnerable and that you can talk about the challenges of your practice. And you know how the Dharma is. When you get deep into the Dharma, there's going to be the pain and suffering from the past that's coming up. And you have to have someone in the experience with you who you can talk about these things. And without the trust, then it's very hard to be in that space. There's skepticism of your own capacity, of the Dharma itself. It's easy to get lost in the path with when you don't trust someone that you're working with. So there's skillful doubt, but then there's this doubt where we just doubt teachers because that's what we do, right? The mind gets doubtful, gets judgmental, and we suddenly we feel like we can't trust the person. And there's this, there's this known phenomenon <clears throat> that happens in the student-teacher relationship and in with students in Sangha where you can go from trusting the person implicitly because you developed a relationship to all of a sudden the mind like has what Goenkaji used to call a doubt storm and it kind of freaks out. It freaks out and suddenly is distrustful of anything and everything, right? The teacher is now a cult leader and the community is now harmful. And so 
And there are true situations like that. So, of course, I understand that. But I'm speaking of this other kind of doubt where the mind really can have this backlash where suddenly it feels distrustful of everything and it can really throw off our practice. So we have to notice when we have skillful doubt of our mentors and when we're having panic, other kind of doubt with the teachings and the teachers. And I wanted to offer a little bit of a litmus test for this balance between the two doubts, because we have seen, especially in the last few years, more openness around communities being able to identify when there's been abuse in Dharma spiritual communities, right? And we've seen several teachers, major teachers in Theravada Buddhism over the last few years have real big abuses of power in their communities. It just, this happens, and I imagine this happens since the beginning of time. Like, people are in a position of authority, teachers are fallible, they're vulnerable, and there's abuse that happens. And it could be any kind of abuse, psychological abuse, abuse of power, can be sexual abuse. And this stuff is real, and this stuff happens. And we have to be comfortable being awake and aware to that when we're establishing mentorship and comfort in a community. So there's the the doubt of noticing that something is wrong in a community, that's not the unskillful doubt. That's the doubt of inquiry of saying, is this safe? Right. And so there's times when we have to call out the abuse in spiritual communities and that's a different kind of doubt. That's health, healthy doubt, right? That's not the doubt of a hindrance. That's just real. That's just real stuff. That's just abuse of power and stuff like that. And one of the things I think I've left several spiritual communities uh, in my trajectory as a, as a Buddhist and not even because of any major abuse or anything like that, but there just came a time in the community where it, my, my, I guess my spiritual values didn't totally align with the community. I wasn't feeling supportive. Like I used to feel and the doubt with the teachers and the community began to interfere with my practice. I didn't feel comfortable. I didn't feel safe. I didn't feel secure, and I started to notice that practice became difficult. At that point, I had to, to make a move. It went from sort of hindering doubt to skillful doubt, and that balance between the two can be difficult to see. So I want to encourage you to do a couple things. One is like when you're having doubt of teacher or dharma or sangha, talk to someone like a friend in the dharma right? Talk it out with someone so you can see which side of the doubt you're really on to make sure you're not just having a bad doubt day, right? Versus really something that's not, that's harmful or not appropriate or not working well for you. So I, I really agree with the Buddha that one of the greatest antidotes to doubt is community. Find someone you can trust to talk about your doubt so you can work it out, out loud, so you can get some real support. Another thing to notice is that one way to establish trust and the healthy doubt in community and with a teacher is you want to look for teachers who are transparent in their teachings. You want to be able to work with someone who's really going to be transparent with their teachings, right? There really shouldn't be some secret teaching off to the side. There shouldn't be some kind of back room something or other that's not up front in the community or in the teaching. So one thing to look for is just an open transparency of the teachings and an openness and transparency of the of the individual a willingness for the person to be vulnerable 
to be honest about their own doubts, to be honest about their own misgivings or just a willingness to say, look, I fell on my face. And so that helps to build that trust. And it, it's also skillful to be able to have that in the Dharma. And so I, I would highly encourage those kind of things to look for in your relationship with a teacher. The other two things that's really important that distinguishes hindering doubt from questioning doubt. As we, as we talked about earlier with the quote, when the Buddha talked about the healthy second guessing, you really should be able to come to a teacher and talk openly about doubts about something they are teaching, right? And or about how they are in a particular way and be able to have a healthy conversation about that, right? The teacher should be sturdy enough of mind and confident enough in not only the Dharma, but in their own capacity in teaching that they should be able to handle constructive criticism. It becomes very dangerous in a spiritual community when people in position of leaderships are averse to constructive criticism, that that becomes a significant problem. So it's another thing is like when you build trust with your teachers, you want to get a feel for whether or not you feel comfortable being able to say, hey, you said something that didn't land for me or you did this thing. And I'm like, what is that? And there should be a, an openness from the teacher to be like, wow, thank you for pointing that out. There should be some transparency and willingness because if not, that that could be a problem. And again, there's some of this that I'll be dealing with at another time in a, in a bigger talk. But these are some of the ways to distinguish between hindering doubt and questioning doubt when you're having doubt of a teacher. Because there really is times when doubt of teacher is really important and may lead to you needing to find another teacher. Now, another aspect of this that I won't go into uh, in detail today, just the fact that we need to acknowledge, and I have to acknowledge this as a male in the Dharma, is that there is a long history of misogyny in Buddhism. And for the longest time, we weren't really talking about that. We weren't talking about it openly, and there was a lot of gaslighting around it, I think. Uh, I know, actually, there was. And I think it's important as men who are in positions of authority in the Dharma that we acknowledge that there is a long history of women being treated as second class in the Dharma, in the monastic tradition, in contemporary Buddhist settings. And I'm not, I'm not going to go into the details today, but I am going to talk about this in the Dharma talk um, because it's a hugely important topic. We have to be able to, to notice this as practitioners because we've inherited it from the teachings, from the teaching structure. And the only way to really notice it is to be able to really see its history and how it's become intertwined in into the Dharma. So it's really important and it's beyond the scope of today's talk. But as a male, I'm this is something that for the last few years, I, it's been kind of a blessing for people to talk about it openly. I think it's important to bring up. So I'm, I will go into a full talk about the history of this in the Dharma uh, and, and help us to understand how we can transcend this and, and heal from some of this. So that's another aspect that's been a challenge for folks in the Dharma when trust of teacher or doubt of teacher is that when there's implicit bias that's culturally inherited and we don't see it or we don't acknowledge it or can't acknowledge it, that again, that inquiry is skillful doubt and that's important. So I want to throw that out there. A couple other things. There's two topics in the Dharma, doubt and, and I believe skillful speech, if I remember correctly where they're hugely important topics and are really deep when you actually practice them. But the actual amount of writings in the actual suttas is really nominal. Like skillful speech 
has like just this tiny little explanation and it gives you kind of a list of things, you know, we have, you know, these different ways of speaking skillfully that are listed out in the Dharma and, but there isn't a whole ton of stuff really written on it. We have to kind of dive into it. And, and doubt is like that. Doubt is one of those things that there isn't a lot written. And I'm going to read you <laughs> the primary instruction around it. So you can see how short and succinct the instruction is on how to deal with doubt, considering how big of an issue it is. And this is the, one of the instructions for it. It goes like this. If doubt is present, one knows there is doubt in me. If doubt is not present, one knows there is no doubt in me. And one knows how unrisen doubt can arise, how arisen doubt can be removed, and how a future arising of doubt can be prevented. So we'd probably have to unpack that to make it really functional for us as meditators. I'm just saying, like, if you're really familiar with the Dharma, you can probably listen to those four lines and you know that that refers to quite a few different meditation practices. Like there's a lot there. It's, it, I mean, and I'm joking, of course, and being a little facetious, but it's just, it's, it looks really simple. Like, oh, I'm doubting. I'm not doubting. Where did that doubt come from? Now I'm enlightened. It doesn't work that way. Doubt is just like, it's a huge thorn in our side. In fact, I don't know if this was a teacher that said it or if it's actually written in the suttas, but doubt is often referred to as being trapped in a thorny patch, right? Thorny mind, being trapped in thorns. So those um, those descriptions are indicative of large quantities of different types of practices. Knowing when something is present, knowing when it is not present, looking for the causes, looking for how uh, the hindrances interact with enlightenment factors. There's this whole treasure trove of, of ways of getting out of the doubt, particularly self-doubt that we have to go into to really <clears throat> understand what this means for our practice. So I'm going to pause there. I'm going to pause there. And that completes more or less what I wanted to say just about the second part of doubt. Thank you for your kind attention. Thanks for listening. Appreciate you tremendously for being uh, in my life in this way. I wanted to thank you all for the Donna that's been contributed for Wednesday Wake Up. The... It feels so weird after like a year and a half of doing this online, like we started Wednesday wake up and it was in person and then we moved to zoom and like, we just never went back. <laughs> and it's just like, I'm just so itching to like be in person with y'all. And I just know, I just really appreciate the fact that you've continued to show up and support this little community and that there's been so many folks who've jumped in and have offered monthly contributions, which has been so tremendously helpful with keeping this up and the cost of the production and everything. I just really appreciate that compassion that you've showed us and the, the support for this. It's just been amazing. And um, yeah, I just want to thank you all. I just, I love you. And I really appreciate the compassion and the generosity of spirit that you all have shown and that we've been able to keep this, keep this up and going through that. I'm getting, still getting over COVID. I've got some, got some neurological stuff. That's not, not going well, but I'm still getting better, which is great. Now it's been kind of two months. So, and I just, just felt so supported. Like people keep coming and I keep trying to work it out. And I just really, it just feels like Sangha to me. I just love that, that sense of support. People are still downloading. So yeah, I just, just appreciate you all really tremendously. Um, so thank you for that. For those who'd like to stay for a few minutes of Meta, 
we'll just fall back into loving kindness. Let's just take a couple long, slow, deep breaths, relaxing fully into body. Being here this evening together in community shows that to some degree, all of us have some amount of confidence in the Buddha's teachings, in the Dharma, in this community. We feel secure enough to come together and practice with the sense that we're going to get something out of it. There's going to be some healing, some wisdom, some connection. And part of the instruction is noticing that. Noticing when doubt is not present. Noticing the feeling that it has to be confident in your meditation practice. To feel supported in community. To trust in the teachings. Relaxing into that, that refuge, is an incredible gift. And it's a gift that we give to each other. And we can remind ourselves that this gift we have of the Dharma, of this meditation, is something that transforms us. And our highest aspiration is this personal transformation will be a gift to everyone we come in contact to. We hope it's a gift that radiates out from our heart. to all beings. And with awareness and body, let's wish well for all beings. May all beings be free from suffering and free from harm. And may all beings be gifted the blessing of kindness, generosity, and compassion. And may we contribute to that giving. And let's wish well for the earth itself. It supports us, sustains us. Let us wish that the earth itself will be free from harm. That it can be respected. Be safe and secure. For the sake of all beings.
And let's conclude tonight with some gratitude for Sangha. Let us wish well for everyone in this room. A sense of gratitude for the generosity of just showing up, being together, the blessing of human connection. And know in this moment with your heart that other this in the, others in this room are appreciating you. Generosity and gratitude. The foundation of the Dharma. Thank you, my friends. So good to see you, as always. See you next week. We will continue our journey. Be well, be safe. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.